Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Welcome back to episode two of our podcast series, Common Envenomations. I'm Dr. Candace Pierce with Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare. And back with me to continue our discussion is Dr. Spencer Green. Thank you, Dr. Green, for joining us for episode two. Happy to be here. Episode one, check it out. It's very insightful. We discussed venomous versus poisonous and common snake envenomations in the U.S. We have so much left to cover in this episode, so we're going to jump right in. Spiders. Let's let's start talking about some spiders. So, Dr. Green, I know there's two uh, two big ones: widow spiders and recluse spiders. Yes. Tell us about those. All right. Yeah. So, there's two main types of spiders we we think about in the United States: you know, the widow spiders or recluse spiders. You'll hear, you'll hear. I can't speak. You'll hear a lot of people talk about you know black widows. Well, technically speaking, there's no spider black widow. We have different types of black widows, and we also have a brown widow. So here in the United States, we have five widow spiders. We have the southern black widow. We have the western black widow. We have the northern black widow, although if you look at its geographic distribution, it really should be called the eastern black widow. We have a red-legged widow, which is um, confined to Florida. And then we have the brown widow, which is actually uh, widely distributed. In fact, it's widely distributed around um, the whole world. And widow spiders, irrespective of species, cause a specific type of invasion. Then we also have recluse spiders. Arguably the most famous is the brown recluse, and that has a pretty big distribution, although not nearly as big as the widow spiders. And there's a lot of parts of the country that don't have the brown recluse or any other recluse spider, and that has some important clinical implications. And then we have a few other recluse spiders which, with much more uh, narrow geographic distributions. So overall, there's like six or seven species of recluse spiders in the U.S., what are the statistics on these bites as far as um, what are they doing when they get bit? Uh, who gets bit? Okay, so um, most people get bitten by either a reckless spider or a widow spider when they're unaware and they sort of crush it or threaten in some sort of way. You know, these spiders aren't going to attack you, but if you sit down on them or you put your hand on them, they're going to bite in defense. As for statistics, I can tell you I have about 200 to 300 people a year come in alleging a recluse spider bite. And of those 200 to 300 people, maybe one of them has a recluse spider. It's the biggest joke uh, in, in toxinology, if you will. Anytime someone has a rash or an abscess or some sort of soft tissue infection, they want to blame a spider. Guess what? It's almost never a spider. And this is especially true you know, in people in the Northeast or Northern United States, where there are no reckless spiders, they'll come in, oh, I have a spider bite. No, you don't. You have an abscess. And it's important to distinguish because the treatments are diametrically opposed. What we do for an abscess is the worst thing you can do for a reckless spider. And what you do for a reckless spider is the worst thing you can do for an abscess. So we get a few hundred spider bites reported to poison centers per year. And we know that poison center data is incomplete. But I can tell you in my practice, I see one or two widow spiders per year and one reckless spider bite per year. But I see hundreds of people who yeah. have a spider bite. Yes, I thought they were more common than that because of what you're saying. Um, I had no idea. Yeah. How do you determine the difference when they come in? Um, if you determine it is a spider bite, a recluse versus a widow? Okay. Well, widow bites and recluse bites look nothing alike. I mean, that's like confusing a Ferrari with a bicycle. 
Widow spiders are the most painful thing I, I treat. Widow spider venomations are the most painful thing I treat. And irrespective of species, what we see is sort of a, some pathomimetic toxidome. These people are hypertensive. They're tachycardic. They're diaphoretic. They're miserable. And they also have a lot of, uh, you know, they get a massive release of acetylcholine, so they get a lot of profound muscle spasms, muscle cramping. So they'll be double over in pain. They'll have really obvious muscle spasms. And oftentimes they're like massaging the leg or arm, whatever is spasming because it's so painful. These people look like death and they have the sensation that they're going to die. But ironically, death is actually really uncommon, fortunately. Uh, it's even less common than rectus spider bites. So it's really dramatic and they just look so, so miserable. They're pouring out sweat. It's, it's hard to really confuse it with anything else. On the other hand, rectus spiders are, their venomation is a lot more insidious. There's two types of things we worry about with recluse spiders. Locally, I think most people are familiar with the little eschar they get, the ulcer. And that's more of a gradual process. You know, the bite often goes unnoticed. And in the first few minutes, you may have like a little red bump. And over the course of hours to days, it's going to evolve. And eventually, you're going to have this central area of, you know, discoloration. It'll be bluish, blackish, brownish, surrounded by this white ring of ischemia, surrounded by this red ring. And we call it the red, white, and blue pattern. And these things are flat, they're dry, they look nothing like an abscess or a soft tissue infection. They're not angry looking and they're not fluctuant, they're not draining, you know. And that's why it's important to distinguish the two. For an abscess, we're gonna drain it, we're gonna cut into it. You don't wanna cut into a rectus spider bite, that actually impairs healing. And that's what we see primarily with rectus spider bites. But what's dangerous about rectus spider envenomations isn't the local stuff, it's the systemic toxicity. They can get what's called loxosalism. And it's a constellation of findings that develop anywhere from 24 to 72 hours after the bite. They can get fever and they can get rash, which is uncomfortable, but what's dangerous is they get really bad hemolysis. So all the red blood cells will get d destroyed, which makes them profoundly anemic and can lead to cardiovascular collapse. And all the products of this hemolysis are gonna clog the kidneys so they can get renal failure, which can also contribute to the cardiovascular collapse. So we get a death every few years from a reckless spider. That's almost always in a kid because they just have this systemic toxicity, but they don't look dramatically like uncomfortable like a widow spider. So it's really easy to distinguish one from the other uh, using local or systemic. Oh, and then locally, I should mention for widow spiders, there's not much. Um, sometimes we see a little redness and swelling, but there's no big lesion. And, uh, and there's, you know, and oftentimes there's not even anything, you know, at all, you know, maybe a little pressure mark, but there's no gross wound like you can eventually get with a reckless bite. So what does the treatment look like? So for widows, it's supportive care. You know, it focuses on their airway being circulation. They're often hypertensive, not hypotensive. Um, so we may have to lower that blood pressure, especially if they're at risk for complications from high blood pressure, like if they have a of stroke mm -hmm. or heart disease or if they're pregnant. We give them pain medicine. We give them muscle relaxants. I like to use benzodiazepines because in addition to the muscle relaxation, they also provide some anxiolysis. And then if it's really bad or the refractory to the other treatment, we actually have antivenom for widow spiders. And again, it has the same bad reputation that snake antivenom has. Oh, it's so dangerous. You know, we shouldn't use it. It actually has a really good safety profile. Uh, one big study estimated the incidence of adverse reactions, I think, at 3.5%. So it's not completely benign, but no drug is. But when used appropriately, it's, it's actually very safe. It may be a little hard to get, but fortunately, later this year, we should have another antivenom on the market, which should be easier to access. So, I was going to ask how easy it was to get your hands on the antivenom. Yeah, it's hard to get the antivenom for widow spiders right now, but 
you know, by the end of 2023, it should be something that hospitals should be able to purchase in stock uh, if they're in areas where there's widow spider innovations. So pain control, good supportive care for widow spiders. For reckless spiders, the systemic toxicity, good, good supportive care, fluid resuscitation. They may benefit from plasma phoresis. Um, they may benefit from corticosteroids for the systemic toxicity. For the local toxicity, it's very simple. For the local findings of a reckless bite, just leave the hell alone. That's what you do for a reckless bite. You don't cut into it. Most of the time, you know, at least 80% of the time, they're going to recover fully if you just leave it alone. There was a study by Donna Seeger and Keith Wren and uh, Seth Wright and Lindsay Murray out of Vanderbilt years ago. They found that 97% of the wounds from a reckless bite got better spontaneously like if you just left them alone. So you're not going to cut into it because that will actually increase the likelihood of impaired healing. The 3 to 20% that do not recover eventually will need skin grafting, but what you don't want to do is do it prematurely. So wait a few weeks. Otherwise, leave it alone. You don't need antibiotics. These are not infectious. You don't use steroids. You don't do hyperbaric oxygen. Just leave it the heck alone. Keep it clean and dry, and, and most of the time they'll get better. So you deal with the systemic stuff, and the best thing you can do for the local stuff is don't let anybody cut into it or give unnecessary antibiotics. What does that long-term recovery look like for them? Sounds terrible in the Reckless, acute phase. Again, anywhere from 80 to 97% will recover just fine over the course of a few weeks. The others get you know, a skin graft, and then they do fine. The recovery from widow spiders, again, if you survive the initial insult, you should be fine. There are case reports of people getting cardiomyopathy, but really rare and generally resolve once the envenomation is over. So they, they both have great prognoses. Again, you just don't want to do anything harmful during the acute phase. Right. Those sound horrible. I didn't realize they were so bad um, from that initial bite. I've seen a recluse. I've seen the wound from, from a bite. but And I remember it was when I was in high school. It didn't look pretty. It's the only one I've ever seen, though. I've never seen one in the hospital setting. And you've seen a lot of people who, who think they have reckless. But again, that's... That's the thing. Right. Everybody who alleges a reckless bite does not have a reckless bite. I thought it was interesting. I was reading one of your articles um, when I was preparing for this. And one of the things you said is that there are many more species of spiders that are blamed for clinical effects for which they are not responsible. I don't know if I said species. I was just saying, you know, people always attribute signs and symptoms to spiders and it's not spiders. Yeah. Tarantulas, are they? Okay, so tarantulas are cool. Um I don't think they, so. They're so big. Generally, their bites are, are ouchies, but that's it. The only other thing to worry about with tarantulas is they can flick these hairs they have on their abdomen and mm -hmm. they your eyes, and that can cause like some damage to your eyes. If they're threatened, they can flick these hairs. But generally, their bites are, are ouchies at best. Oh, so, so big. I, bet, I, I think I bet. The, biggest, the biggest problem with, with tarantulas is arachnophobia and people having you know panic attacks when they see you know, this spider that's bigger than their first car uh, coming toward them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go the opposite direction. Yeah. Um, okay, scorpions. Um, I don't know why I have this fear of them being in my shoes. I don't know if they're here in Florida. Um, but... Um, I assume we're talking about the arthropods and not the band from Germany, because I'd be afraid if they were in my shoe as well. But yeah, um, yeah. so scorpions are found throughout the South. Um and, and other parts of the country as well, not so much in the northeast or the northern part of the country, but scorpions are in a lot of places. The good news is of the approximately 90 scorpion species in the U.S., most of them, their stings are not that serious. 
there's really only one species that consistently is worrisome, and that is the Arizona bark scorpion, Centrodes sculpturatus, which is found primarily in Arizona, and then like the western part of New Mexico, the eastern part of California, the southern part of Nevada, and the southern part of Utah. So the rest of the country, they have scorpions, and their stings are ouchies. Uh, there have been some adverse reactions from the striped bark scorpion, uh, which is found, actually has the biggest distribution of any uh, scorpion species. We have them in Texas. There have been at least two deaths attributed to that, but both times it was due to legitimate anaphylaxis. People who were previously sensitized to arthropod venom who had legitimate and laboratory confirmed anaphylaxis. So there's been two deaths with that. And, and again, that's not a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Most of the time, scorpions are ouchies. But the Arizona bark scorpion is a unique animal that has a very uh, unique uh, clinical presentation. It's sort of a, a grading system. You know, when you get stung by one of those, if, if it's a mild envenomation, you'll have pain or paresthesias at the site. If it's a little more serious, what we call grade two, they'll have pain and or paresthesias locally, but also at a site distant to where they were stung. And then when you get to grade three and four, you can start getting cranial nerve involvements where they can have what's called opsiclonus. Their eyes are going different directions, or they can have like tongue fasciculations, or their larynx can spasm. And they can have like neuromuscular thrashing. And those are really impressive and, and scary looking and, uh, and potentially life-threatening. But fortunately, we can manage these people with either uh, antivenom or with supportive care. And the antivenom for the Arizona scorpion is very effective, very safe. It's actually a phenomenal drug. And I was one of the sub-investigators uh, back in 2007, 2008. And it was just amazing to see these people who were so miserable and so much pain get the antivenom. And 35, 40 minutes later, they were totally fine and went home. Wow. How uh, easy is it to get that antivenom? So I don't practice in Arizona anymore, but I can tell you when I was there, pretty much all the hospitals had it because scorpion envenomation is so, so common. You know, my first year in fellowship, we saw maybe 50, 60 snake bites. I'm not sure, you know, anywhere from 45 to 60. We probably saw several hundred scorpion stings. And my first night ever on call, I remember I had five patients. My first patient ever was an oxycodone and a cinnamon overdose. And two of the next four were scorpion envenomations. And because I had been teaching toxicology in Ohio, that was something with which I wasn't at all familiar. So it was very eye-opening for me to see how painful they were, but also how quickly they responded to appropriate treatments. Where are you usually stung by a scorpion? Is there like a, are they just walking barefoot? No, uh, so sometimes, um, oftentimes it's the hand because you don't, you, you reach into something and you don't see it. But often in kids, you know, the scorpions will fall on them like, or whatever. So we can get stung anywhere. Um, oh but yeah, feet, hands are most common. Uh, babies, if there was one that fell into their crib, it could be anywhere on the torso. Oh, gosh. That sounds terrible. Yeah. Okay. Anything else we need to know about scorpions before we move into insects? Uh, like I said, um, really painful. So if you don't have antivenom, good supportive care. I remember seeing years ago, a lot of people were treating these with benzodiazepines because the patients were so agitated, but they're agitated mm -hmm. They're so painful. So make sure you're, you're, you're liberal with the opioids as well. You know, these are painful. So give them pain. Yeah. All right. So waspies, well, let's start with bees. Okay. Um, first of all, I didn't realize that a bumblebee and a honeybee were not the same thing. I thought it was the same. There are differences. They're, they're different. Yes, they're different species. Yeah. I didn't know that. So, so um, and, other than... and, and, yeah. And, Go ahead. So, you know, honeybees, they have their barbed stingers and they sting you once and then they die. And, you know, with the other 
hymenoptera, they don't have barb singers, so they can sing you more than once. Uh, we also have the um, killer bees. Oh, that's yeah. the killer bees. So yeah, what? So, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, what is the, the 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 treatment difference between honeybees and then killer bees okay. sting? Yeah, we call them hybridized. So okay. the bees themselves individually are not more dangerous than our domestic ones. And realize in the South, pretty much all the bees that are in the wild are these hybridized. They, you know, they entered America in Hidalgo, Texas back in the 90s, and they pretty much taken over the Southern half of the United States. What makes them so dangerous isn't the individual venom or the individual bee, is the fact that they have this mob mentality, this swarm mentality. They will defend the hive at all costs. They're like the Terminator. They're not gonna go away until they complete their mission. So if you disturb them, they're going to go after you and they're going to sting you. And it's not going to be one or two stings. It's going to be hundreds of stings. It's going to be thousands of stings. I've treated two patients who each had over 2,000 stings. So oh, wow. individually, not a big deal. But when you get that many, it becomes a big deal because we start worrying about like life-threatening signs and symptoms at about 20 to 40 stings per kilogram. So if you have someone who weighs 50 kilos and 20 stings, that's 1,000 stings. Well, if someone has 2,000 stings, that's potentially really dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that, that doesn't even talk about the allergic stuff. Obviously, allergy to hymenoptera is something different. And even a single sting can cause life-threatening symptoms. But um, even for people who are not allergic, when you get that many stings, you can get systemic toxicity, you know, cardiovascular collapse, and, you know, airway swelling, all sorts of things. Now, I learned this a few years ago. We have, um, I have an anesthesiologist friend and they are, he has bees, um, beehives. So I went out there with them a few times and... Um, to check the hives and she, she reached down and she got stung on her jeans by a honeybee. So she went to hit it. And when she hit it, she said, I can't get in the truck with you now because I guess there's a pheromone that they release that says to the hive, cause she was, we were very close to the hive that there was danger. So they actually came and sw- swarmed around her, but they didn't sting her anymore. She had to walk. She had to keep walking away from the hive and eventually they left her alone. Um, but the difference between the honeybees, I guess, hybrid bees would be that mentality that they would have come out stinging. They would have come out more aggressive versus that honeybee. Probably. That's probably a little outside my area of expertise. I didn't know about the, yeah, I knew you had to, had to walk them off eventually, but yeah. Um, yeah. She, she had to walk a long ways away from the hive before she could get back in the truck with us. So that was very interesting. Um, so when I was, um, in high school, I got stung by something in between my fingers. I went to pull a a towel off of a, off of a rope that was where it was drying. And I remember it hurt really, really bad. We have no idea what it was. Um, but I was going to go to the lake and swim. I I didn't think much about it, but I started to feel really, really nauseous. So I went and sat down on the steps and the nausea didn't get better. So I stood up to go to the bathroom and I reached for the door handle and I passed right out and I woke up on the couch. What do you think caused that response, just a vagal nerve response to the sting or? So how old are you when this happened? I was about 16, 17. Um, some people are going to have, you know, severe reactions because of the pain, you know, pain can cause people to pass out, no question about it. But mm-hmm. one of the things that can happen following a hymenopterin venomation is you can get vasodilation. So, uh, you could just be, you know, you stand up quickly, you get orthostatic and you pass out. It could also have been a vagal thing where the blood vessels dilate and your heart rate goes down. So I, I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, yeah. You probably don't remember all the details. So there's a lot of explanations for it. 
Yeah. Well, yellow jackets, hornets, and wasps. What do we need to know about them? They're evil. Um, yeah, they are. They hurt. Things hurt. I've been stung by hornets. I've been stung by wasps. Um, they hurt. But again, unless it's a massive envenomation or you're allergic, it's more about pain control and, uh, and local care. Okay. Well, again, a lot of healthcare providers, you know, they, they work out there in the summer with the kids. And I get a lot of children that come to me with being stung. So usually what I do is just try to check and see, is the stinger still in their, in the site? Um, give them some, maybe some kind of topical numbing something, um, to try to help the pain, depending on how it looks, maybe a topical antihistamine or cream. Um, but what I have also found is that popsicles work really good too for, for yes. pain control. Popsicles work for a majority of pediatric emergencies. So I do a lot of pediatric emergency medicine and I always joke that I can treat, you know, a significant number of my patients with some combination of Zofran, IV fluid and popsicles. Yes. Um, yeah. But for, for your non life-threatening envenomations, it's a good, you know, just good supportive care, pain control, and that includes topical stuff. You know, I like topical lidocaine. Um, you mm -hmm. can use for the swelling when it's like itchy and swelling, you can use oral or topical antihistamines. Um, now, you mentioned the stinger. Every once in a while, I hear someone talk about, oh, you have to remove the stinger immediately. It's like so important. It's actually not that important in the scheme of things. You know, the venom sacs attached to the stingers empty all their venom in the first 30 to 60 seconds. So after the first 30 to 60 seconds, there's no rush to remove the stinger. It's something that has to be done eventually because it's a foreign body, but it's not emergent. Like if you're dealing with someone with low blood pressure or serious pain or, you know, airway swelling, it's not a priority after 30 to 60 seconds. You get to it when you get to it. You know, with right. one of our patients who had several thousand stings, he was flown to us. We didn't get around to the stingers until like the second day. We had some medical students get a whole bunch of tape and just go, you know, inch by inch and get all the stingers out. It wasn't a priority because they're essentially inert after the first minute. I can't imagine having to remove that many stingers. Wow. Um, as far as, I know you mentioned antihistamines, what about topical steroids? Is that beneficial? It may for itchiness. You know, it's worth it if the, uh, the other topical stuff doesn't work. Yeah, and if it ends okay. a lot of swelling, we'll do oral steroids as well. So. Right. Okay. Anything else that a uh, healthcare provider should know if they come in contact with somebody who's been stung? Other than carry EpiPen in case they are. they should carry EpiPen. But that's, I'm glad you brought that up. For all envenomations, you know, Epi is not something that should be used routinely. If you have a documented mm -hmm. allergy or someone's having clear signs of anaphylaxis, you know, hypotension, airway swelling, you know, refractory vomiting, then epinephrine should be used, but it shouldn't be used routinely. And that's true. Regardless of the mission, whether it's a snake or a spider or a scorpion, epinephrine is for someone who's having allergic, you know, severe allergic reactions, not mild ones, severe allergic reactions. Okay. Yes. Very good to know. And that's something that we keep on hand at, at camp in the summer too. We always have an EpiPen with a, a provider and with a, the, the camp counselors, just in case. Um, caterpillars and centipedes, anything we need to know about those? Yeah, so my favorite caterpillar is uh, is the pus caterpillar or the asp, um, Megalopsia opercularis. And they're adorable. They look like little furry pot stickers. Uh, mm -hmm. The most important thing, though, is to avoid getting stung. So don't sit under oak trees in late fall. Um, mm -hmm. They like oak trees, and they'll just fall on people, and they'll get stung. 
there's a, a local college where they get like half a dozen to a dozen of these a day during peak season because they're just everywhere. Um, yeah, just because th- something looks cute and furry, don't pick it up because, you know, they have these stingers under their hairs and it hurts. It hurts a lot. Um, you know, other caterpillars aren't quite as bad, but they can all sting. So, you know, don't mess with them and, you know, don't walk around barefoot uh, in the grass. You know, throughout the country, there's sort of a bimodal distribution. You see a peak in the late spring, early summer, and then you see one in late fall, early winter. Here in Texas, where I am, we don't see them in the summer because it's too hot. So historically, from the end of September to the beginning of November, I guess that's all fall, late summer, we'd see them. This past year, everything was shifted by a few weeks because of the weather. So I didn't even start seeing them until the end of November, beginning of December, and I saw them until January. So just watch where you step and don't hang out under oak trees for any length of time unless you're wearing a hat because these things can hurt and, and you can land on you and hurt. And, uh, and generally, it's, it's just local pain. Some people do get systemically ill. We published a case report of someone who was transferred for presumed appendicitis or peritonitis because she was so, so symptomatic. She was doubled over in pain. She was having abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting. And as soon as we numbed up her sting site, all her symptoms resolved. It was quite oh, wow. Yeah. Um, do they, they release the hairs and they fall on you or there's stingers underneath their hairs. So if they touch you, if they make contact, you can get stung. Like when, when you touch their bodies, the stingers right below the hairs will just inject the venom. Oh, okay. I thought they released their hairs. No, I don't know if caterpillars do that. Um, centipedes. Yeah. So centipedes, uh, you know, they're similar. Uh, they, some of them are really impressive. They're big and scary looking. Then they, they bite. People have debated for a long time. Is it in? Is it a stinger or is it a bite? It's actually a bite. They have these modified jaws and their bites hurt. Um, you can get systemic toxicity, but mostly it's local you know, injury, but it can be impressive local injury. Um, I had someone in his 90s coming after getting bitten by one of these things and he was miserable. Um, so we don't see them a lot, but they're, they're, out, they're out there. You know, they're throughout the South. They're in Florida, they're in the Southwest. Um, we have them in Texas. Don't, I don't see them a lot. I think I've probably seen one centipede in the wild ever. So, so with the caterpillars and the centipedes, really treatment is going to be pain control. Exactly. Okay. Um, marine life. Um, I was reading through some of the, the different marine life that you were talking about. I did not realize catfish were venomous. Yeah. That was, that was a new one for me. And I've fished my whole life. But catfish, lionfish, rockfish, scorpionfish, stingrays yep. are all venomous. When I was in Okinawa, stonefish, I want to say the stonefish was a big one we had to watch out for. Absolutely. So what do we need to know about these guys? All right. Let's start with the most obvious. There is no benefit in urinating on marine envenomations, whether it's a jellyfish or a stonefish, whatever. You know, if you got to go, you got to go. But don't, (laughs) you know, someone's envenomation is an excuse to urinate on them. It will not help. Okay. Good to know. So the most important thing to know about all marine venomations is that they have heat labile venoms. So the definitive pain control treatment is immersion in hot water. What do I mean by now, that? Is that tap water, salt water? Hot, hot, tap water is fine. So, but first, I'm glad you asked. First thing you want to do, especially with like a, excuse me, a jellyfish, you want to remove the tentacles. And you want to use salt water for that. You just pour it on and whisk it away. If you were to use tap water, which is hypotonic, it could actually 
exacerbate the firing of the nematocysts, which are the venom apparatus on these jellyfish. So you want to wash them off with the uh, salt water. You can also use vinegar to inactivate the nematocysts. So once the nematocysts are gone, or once the stinging apparatus is gone, then pain control. And of course, we can use traditional analgesics, opioids or whatever. But because all these marine venoms are heat labile, you can also immerse the affected limb in hot water. Now, how hot? If you have a thermometer, you know, 105 to 110 degrees, but most people don't have a thermometer. So what you do is, let's say you're stung in your right hand. You feel the hot water with your left hand. And as hot as your left hand can tolerate, that's what you immerse your right hand in, the affected limb. You don't want to judge the temperature using the affected limb because sometimes your sensation is altered and you may not realize it's so hot you're actually causing damage to yourself. Or if it's numb, you may not realize it's not hot enough to do anything. You're just having continued pain. So use right. the unaffected hand to test the water and then immerse the affected limb in that hot water. And usually after a few minutes, they feel a whole lot better. What about vinegar? So vinegar is, is good to inactivate um, the nematocyst for most jellyfish, but not all. For example, we use it for the man of war, the Portuguese man of war, which we have here in Texas. But there are some yeah. uh, sea nettles where vinegar can actually exacerbate the nematocyst. So what you should do is figure out where you live or figure out where you're traveling, find out if it's one of the species for which vinegar is indicated. And if it is, carry a little bottle with you on the beach and that can help inactivate the stuff. Um, other things to know about marine venomations, obviously you want to get out of the out of the water, you know, sometimes you can get serious systemic toxicity. It, it's definitely happened with the Portuguese man of war and they need good supportive care. There's only antivenom for a certain species of box jellyfish, which is not native to the U.S. And there's only antivenom for one venomous fish species. And that's the stonefish, which again, not native to the United States. Uh, it's just good supportive care. And then when it comes to stingrays, there's a few things to consider. Stingrays can cause not only an envenomation, they can cause actual trauma. And I think everyone remembers what happened to Steve Irwin. It wasn't yes. the envenomation so much as that he got staked in the heart. And then he pulled it out too. And he was probably removed the one thing that was tamponading his bleeding. So he bled to death um, after that. So with stingrays, you have to consider the concomitant trauma. The other thing is, anytime you have a marine envenomation where something's stuck deeply into your tissue, this in contradistinction to our terrestrial envenomations, these should be treated with antibiotics because marine water or, you know, whatever, it has a lot more bacteria. And uh, especially mm -hmm. with the brackish water, we want to cover um, with antibiotics. Now, it's not like you're guaranteed infection. I think the incidence of infection following stingrays is about 14%, but that's a lot higher than the less than 1% it is for snakes, for example, or the less than 1% you'd see from spiders, et cetera, et cetera. So with marine envenomations, if there's something that was embedded, whether it was an urchin, a sea urchin, or a stingray, especially a stingray, you want to cover those people with antibiotics as opposed to our terrestrial stuff. Okay. Anything I'm missing on uh, marine life that you think we should cover? Uh, hot water, um, you know, talk to the locals, find out when, when the jellyfish can be bad. Like I was in Pensacola once and... There was just one weekend where all the jellyfish were just washed up everywhere on the shore. So you couldn't go swimming. Yes. There's just every foot you'd find a bunch of jellyfish. So yes, make sure you check the flags before you go. If yes. you're visiting a beach, if it's purple, should probably not go in the water. Okay. I didn't know that's what purple meant. I would have assumed royalty, but okay. <laughs> no purple flags at, at the beach, at least here in Florida. I mean, we have marine life right there in the water, usually jellyfish. Uh, I know there's some little 
sometimes when you get out in the water, you don't see jellyfish, but you feel things stinging you. Um, yes. Also, tentacles not attached to jellyfish, they can still sting, right? Absolutely, yep. Yep, mm. you can have a little tentacle with all the nematocysts floating up. Yeah, both my kids got venoms back in 2013 in Pen- or 2012 in Pensacola. Um, so yeah, we just we washed it off with salt water and gave them some oral pain medicine. They were fun. Yeah. Yeah. It depends on how bad you want to swim in the ocean. Yes. All right. The last thing that I have on our list is lizards, uh, specifically the, is it called the Gila monster? The Gila monster. Oh, okay. Well, it looks, I looked at a picture of it. It looks terrifying. Not going to lie. So I think they're adorable. Um, I can also tell you the worst envenomation I have ever treated came from a Gila monster. Really? So it's appropriate that you chose to do this last. I don't think it was intentional. But yeah, the worst envenomation I've ever treated was a Gila monster uh, bite. So this was a guy who had had six previous snake bites. He actually lost his thumb to a snake bite. And oh he decided God. one morning, uh, after having his two pitchers of beer for breakfast, he decided he wanted to be a pirate. Well, because he couldn't find a parrot, he put the next best thing on his shoulder, a Gila monster. The Gila monster bit him on the neck. One of the things we see with human monster envenomations, you get a lot of low blood pressure, a lot of hypotension. So this guy's blood pressure dropped to 40 over 26. Human monster venom also causes a lot of angioedema and a lot of diarrhea. So he had horrible diarrhea, which is actually redundant because there's no such thing as good diarrhea. So he had angioedema, he had diarrhea, his blood pressure was low, and his airways swelled up. This was at a tiny little hospital in southern Arizona. They forced a tube down his throat. They gave steroids, uh, antihistamines, epinephrine fresh frozen plasma, anything they could, they, and most of which don't actually work. And they flew him to us, you know, they gave him lots of fluids. And he had come about an hour, like 10 minutes after a, a snake bite. And I said something to my snake bite patient that I've said to no other snake bite victim before or since, because you know, I love snake bites. I said, excuse me, I'm going to go take care of somebody more interesting. Because hers was a straightforward bite. And this guy was sick. And this guy spent eight days on the ventilator. Uh, oh my gosh. Again, the most impressive thing I've ever seen. So heel monsters are great. They're slow. They don't want to, you know, we always discourage, you know, handling venomous critters, but um, especially venomous snakes. But I've had plenty of friends who've safely handled uh, heel monsters because they're, they're slugs, you know, they're, they're chill. Um, but, you know, don't mess with them. One of the big things we have to worry about if you get bitten by a heel monster is their jaws are so tight, it may be really hard to extract your body part from them. So you have to find safe ways, safe, effective ways of opening their mouths. So some people use like a flat object, like a, like a ruler and stick it back or like a, you know, not a sharp knife, but you know, something that can sort of pry it open. Some people pour like alcohol down their mouths to have them open it up. Some people submerge their, you know, the, the lizard with attached to the limb underwater. So getting the lizard off is one big thing. You know, get it's them like off a snapping turtle. Yeah. And then you get a lot of local tissue injury. People have debated the need for antibiotics. I think with good uh, irrigation, you know, cleaning out the wound, antibiotics shouldn't be prescribed prophylactically, but definitely watch for infection. Um, but yeah, most people get bit because they're messing with it. Because again, these animals are so lazy that they're, they don't want to bite you. So don't mess with them and you'll probably be fine. But realize they can't have systemic toxicity. But hey, it also may help your diabetes because... You know, exenatide comes from Gila monster venom. So if you're a oh. diabetic, get bit by Gila monster, maybe it'll control your blood sugar. Oh my gosh. Okay. What did his uh, recovery look like long-term? Um, was there any lasting effects from this? 
So the guy who was on the vent for eight days, uh, he was lost to follow up. But uh, again, he wasn't the greatest specimen to start with. He was already missing a thumb and he was old and chronically ill appearing. So yeah. he was lost to follow up. Hmm. Okay. So note to self, don't mess with those. Are they seen? All, like, are they easy to see out in wherever they are? Did he just walk outside and find them? So I was never able to find one in the wild, but there was a, a young lady that we treated for a snake bite. And uh, she was coming to our clinic for follow-up. And I had mentioned to her that I like heel monsters. She she came in with like a box of heel monsters that she'd caught on her property. So they're definitely easy to spot. You know, you can find them in places where they're native. So. And you kept all those, huh? No, no, they got returned to the wild. Oh, good. Okay. All right. So sounds terrible. I I, I kept a a non-venomous snake in my office, and that was the only pet I had in my office. Okay. Anything else we should know about this uh, lovely lizard? Um, like I said, I think it's really neat that exenatide, you know, bieta comes from Gila monster venom. And I think it's bizarre that the research done on this was done in New York City, where I promise you there are no native Gila monsters. So I think that's kind of yeah. bizarre. But I think they're awesome. Just don't mess with them. And I can tell you that I am lecturing on venomous lizard envenomations in um, September at the Denver Venom Conference, which I encourage all listeners to attend. Um, all the proceeds go to the Asclepia Snakebite Foundation, which is my friend's organization. And uh, there's a great line of speakers covering a whole host of venomous topics. All right. Well, we've talked about a lot of different uh, creatures that can envenomate from slithering, flying to crawling and swimming. Is there anything we missed or anything you want to make sure that um, you you, uh, share? I think we've covered everything and then some. Okay. Well, we have come to the end of episode two in our series on common creatures that can envenomate, where we have discussed clinical presentations, interventions, and treatments. Dr. Spencer Green, you're a rock star. Thank you so much for um, sharing your uh, time with us and for all that you have done to help grow our body of research and um, treating patients um, with for things that not a lot of people study or know how to treat. So I know you have a really big following. So thank you for taking time. I also want to mention um, your Facebook page, if that's okay, um, where you can connect um, experts to people who have had snake bites. Um, National Snake Bite Support, is that what it's called? Yes. So we have about 200,000 members and we exist to answer questions for both patients and their representatives as well as clinicians. Um, you know, when someone comes with a snake bite and no one knows what to do, they contact us. We always have somebody moderating, you know, and monitoring the feed and they can connect us experts with the people who need the timely information. And, uh, and, you know, our purpose is to help people get the appropriate treatment and to avoid unnecessary stuff. And, and yeah. we have a lot of educational posts and we also have a great file repository with hundreds of articles that are relevant to the practice of, uh, toxinology. Yeah, so this is a great free resource. So thank you so much, Dr. Green, for um, having that for our listeners and for um, the people who are members. So um, to our listeners, I hope you've gained insight through this series into how to care for envenomations. And we encourage you to explore many courses we have available on EliteLearning.com to help you grow professionally in your career and earn CEs. This is Dr. Candice Pierce for Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare. 
This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.